Hey, let me do a couple of things kind of to, to uh, get started. First of all, I want to say hello to the other uh, campuses God has allowed us to birth. And um, this past week we had several starting points, but uh, today is one at Franklin. So if you're at the Franklin campus, man, make sure you sign up. It's tonight and then Wednesday is actually the Hendersonville campus. So if you're at the Hendersonville campus, make sure you uh, sign up as well. And I tell you what, we had a lot of folks, uh, as might have already been mentioned, but a lot of folks already uh, said, you know what, I want to be a part of what God is doing at Biltmore uh, from the East Campus uh, this past Wednesday to the West Campus to the Arden Campus. And so regardless of what campus you're on, if you put your hands together and just say, welcome, glad you're part of the team. All right, uh, secondly, um, you know, the, uh, the song you just sang is a lot of different folks had a lot of different things to do with it. And one of the things we have as a church, number one, is the songs are written, first of all, for the Little C, uh, Biltmore Church. And, and so you all have been singing that now for probably six, eight months already. Um, and so we're, if it doesn't work here, we don't want to uh, take it elsewhere. Uh, but to whom much is given, much is also required. And uh, one of the things we want to be is part of not just blessing our church, but if God would see fit to bless the larger church uh, around the country. And so this is the first effort at that. Uh, two things. Uh, God's already been very gracious to us. I looked for, it got released Friday morning, Friday afternoon. It was uh, number 34 on iTunes already. And so great, great uh, start. And so whatever your music streaming service is, make sure you uh, use that uh, and be blessed by it. But before we jump into God's word, uh, there's, again, there's a lot of folks, and you see all these young folks up here on the platform, but uh, also want to recognize a person that in many ways his fingerprints are all over it. And regardless of what campus you go to, you've been blessed by his ministry. He's been here for uh, over two decades, all right? And um, anyway, it's, the, it's what we call the central uh, worship pastor. His name is Carl Sutherland. Would you give him a big old attaboy as well? Carl, we love you very much. Very, very glad. Very, very glad uh, for your family, your ministry, man, and your great friend, partner, all of those things. So uh, thank you for that. All right, here's where we are. We're in a series. We started just kind of a little, almost a filler before we jump into the summer series, which will be out of a New Testament book called the book of Colossians about the supremacy of Jesus, all right? So we'll be in that for like eight to 10 weeks. But what we're gonna do in this month of May is we're gonna take about the four or five number one questions that are asked, how does this work, all right? How does this work? I've got questions about this. And so what we did is, we kind of polled a lot of people, and it's like, what are the number one questions we've got? How to do what? And so we came up with pretty much the top five. You know, it's how do I know God's will? All right, that was last week. All right, how do I make a difference? All right, that's actually, that's actually next week, everything. How do I understand my Bible? I don't even know where to, how do I understand it? How's it structured? Where did it come from? All right, that's in like week number four. But the one today, people ask a variety of different ways, all right? They don't ask it like this. But when you, all, when you boil it all down, it is basically how do, how do I defeat temptation? Now listen, when I say temptation, a lot of different stuff comes to a different people's mind for each of us. For some of you, it's as simple as like you know, carbs or something, all right? It's like, okay, I gotta, I gotta be careful about the carbs that I eat. That's a temptation, that donut or that cracker. I mean, some of you all actually were really struggling at Good Friday thinking, okay, I'm, I'm keto, should I take the Lord's Supper? I mean, seriously, I actually heard about that. So that's, it's like, a, it's not a temptation, all right? Just look, you know, just, that's not a temptation, all right? Um, but some of you, it's, it's a variety of things. Maybe it's a person, person at the office. For some of you, it's a compromise at work. You have a chance to get ahead, not just ahead, but way ahead. But to do so, you'd have to make some choices that compromise your values. Others of you, it's an internet thing. Others of you, it's a substance thing. Others of you, it's a temper, emotional thing. So here's what I want you to do. When you hear the word temptation, what pictures, what emotions flash 
through your mind. My guess would be uh, there's a lot of defeat in there. Uh, having done this, not only pastored for a long time, but also actually lived for a fairly long time and experienced enough defeat, uh, what we oftentimes will do is we'll raise the white flag. If you have enough defeat, you almost get what they call in sports teams a losing culture. You get so used to losing, you don't put up the fight that you used to put up before you understood, well, losing is just what I do in this situation. And so what I want you to do is I want you to pick whatever that is. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or write it on a piece of cardboard or admit it to the person next to you, all right? That's you. It's between you and God. But what is that one area? What is that one area of temptation and struggle? And I want you to remember two things. We're going to go through an amazing text, but I want you to remember two things as we walk through this. And you'll see it in the text. Number one is there is so much more at stake in every temptation than you can even imagine. There's always more at stake than what it appears is at stake in the temptation. Pick whatever it is that you're struggling with now. Whatever that thing is and whatever you think that thing could cost you, whatever you think it could cost you, it'll cost you more. So whatever it is that you're struggling with, there's always more at stake than what it appears And the second thing, and we're going to break this into two parts, the second thing you'll see in the text is our ability, your ability to actually win on this front on a consistent basis has a lot to do with your confidence in God, his character, his ability, what he's done in your life. A lot of it has to do much more than your self-discipline, your self-control, certain things that you might do, your confidence in God. What is my confidence in God like? So, We're going to look at an amazing passage in the book of James. That's where we're going to be. And what you're going to see is the curtain. What I'm going to try to do and what the text does an amazing job of is pulling the curtain back and exposing temptation for what it is. Usually when you are in the midst of temptation, you don't really see it for what it actually is. We kind of get lost in the fog of it, and you'll see it in a number of different metaphors and analogies. I mean, this is the one week that there is no shortage of illustrations because the book gives the illustrations. You're gonna see illustrations, everything from pregnancy to hunting to fishing to you name it, and there's an illustration here. And so what it does, it pulls the curtain back. I think about the, uh, I'll date myself a little bit, but there's a, there's a movie called The Wizard of Oz, and The Wizard of Oz, famous movie, one of the things that happens is when the great and powerful Oz, who so body, everybody was so intimidated by. They were so in awe of, they were so scared of, they were so defeated by, it took a little dog to actually go up and pull the curtain back and expose a little old man back behind the curtain pulling the levers, and all of a sudden the great and powerful Oz was not so great and powerful. And what we want to do in the text today is we want to pull the curtain back on temptation and that struggle and that area of defeat in your life. Pull the curtain back, look at it for what it is, and see that it is not the all great and powerful struggle, the great and powerful defeat that you maybe have come to expect. So here's where we're going to be. We're going to be in James chapter 1. This is Jesus' younger brother. You know, Jesus uh, uh, had a mother and a heavenly father, but then after that, After that, there were several brothers and sisters, the scriptures tell us, and so we don't see a lot about Jesus' upbringing. 
You don't see a lot about that, but you know for 30 years he was raised in a home, in a carpenter's home, and all that went along with that. He was, and James comes along. James is actually his younger brother. He declares Jesus was God, but he was also without sin. James came to faith after the resurrection, but he grew up with Jesus. He watched Jesus. He surely talked with Jesus like brothers do talk. And one of those areas surely was about temptation. You're going to see some allusions to maybe the great temptation you see in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 where Jesus was actually tempted. And so maybe James is thinking about some of those conversations they had way back then when he unpacks this amazing text. And so let me read you about three verses. I'm going to bring a couple of words out. We're going to talk about it, and then we're going to go to the last one about the solution. The first one is you just got to understand what it is, what's going on when this temptation is happening, and then how do we actually solve it? So verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted. The word temptation is, uh, you can define it almost like it's an invitation. It's an invitation to do evil. It's not sin. It's an invitation to sin. Some of you feel guilty because you're tempted. The Bible, again, is clear. Jesus was tempted yet without sin. So you don't feel guilty because you were tempted. Just understand what it is. So let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is, and these are some amazing words we're going to kind of unpack. The first one is actually a hunting term and the second one is a fishing term. When he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We'll come back to that as well in verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. All right, so let's just let's kind of unpack a few things before we get to the first principle. Again, the Bible says Jesus did not sin, but he was tempted. And so when it says, when you are tempted, this is both an assumption that you will face temptation as well as a warning that you need to kind of understand where your particular proclivity, where your particular danger zone might be. Because you have danger zones that other people might not have. And you need to be aware of those. Think about when you're driving down the highway and it has these signs. It's like, minute work, minute work, minute work. Be careful, fines are doubled. Fines are doubled, fines are tripled. All right, let them work, let them live. That's kind of the deal. You understand, I gotta be extra careful in this particular place. And it runs the obvious ones from the kid's first overnight stay at a friend's house to the first-year college student away from the parents to the young single professional who's new in WNC to the married person who's on a road trip and, and for 10 days to the time when you were physically, physically worn out, you're emotionally worn out, you've had great victory. Some of you, it's certain people. Every time you're around these certain people, it's like, man, every time I hang out about this guy, I always regret the activity that we go to. Some of it's places. It's like, you know what? I don't like what happens when I go to that place. I don't like it when we go there, but I keep going there. Now, here's a little insight. Your upbringing, your experience, your scars have a lot to do with your certain vulnerable areas. All of us have certain common things, all right? You're, you're not special. There's nobody in here that's like, well, I've got the only temptation. The Bible says, you know what? There's no temptation but that which is common to man. All right, your tip, but there are some differences in maybe this group versus that group versus that group. Some of it has to do with even how late you came to faith in Jesus. 
I came to faith in Christ at 17, so my flesh is what the Bible calls that natural, innate desire to rebel against God that was not taken away when you come to Christ. That had a lot of years to put some patterns in place. It had a lot of years to have some ruts, some patterns of sin that didn't get any pushback for a long time. For years, there was no battle against certain things. I didn't try to fight against it. It was just like, that's what guys do. That's, where, that's what guys act like. Why should I push against that? But then when you come to Christ, the battle begins. But the ruts, the patterns, the proclivities, the, those are still there. And so he says that to say, again, one more thing before we go into our first principle, and that is, don't say that you're tempted by God. And what is he trying to get across there? He's trying to get across the fact that our temptation when we sin is to blame somebody else. We inherited that from our parents, not your immediate parents, but your distant parents named Adam and Eve. If you go back to the first time where our parents sinned in the Genesis chapter three in the garden, what happens? All right, the temptation is there. God confronts them with their sin. Adam says, the woman you gave me, all right? And husbands have been blaming their wives ever since for our sin. It's like, you know what, though? And he's actually blaming Eve and God at the same time. He's saying, you know what? Not only, not only did Eve cause me to sin, but actually, if you hadn't given me this spouse, I wouldn't have sinned. And then Eve looks at God and says, the serpent is the one that made me sin. So the tendency to blame somebody else has been very natural in us forever. We're a no-fault society right now. Here's the way it comes out today. He gave me these desires. He gave me this personality. He gave me this spouse. He gave me this tendency. He gave me and put me in this situation. He gave me this heritage. And the mantra of our culture today for sure is, I gotta be true. I need to be true to myself. I have to be true to myself, loved ones. That is the mantra of today, but the mantra for the Jesus follower is not I need to be true to myself. The Jesus follower says I need to repent of myself and be true to Jesus. That's what the Jesus follower says. And so as we walk through here, here's what I want you to get. Principle number one, there is always, always, always more at stake than you think there is. There's always more at stake. There's always more on the line than we think there is. If you're young, there's a lot of future at stake. If you're old, there's a lot of legacy at stake. If you're somewhere in between, you've got not just, you have a lot of future and a lot of legacy at stake. So when you're tempted, what do you think you have on the line? Whatever it is you think you have on the line, there's more than that at stake. There's always more than you think that's on the line when the bait is dropped in front of you. So I'm gonna show you a little process. I'm gonna show you a pattern that just jumps off the page and show you how this works in all situations, at all times, with all peoples, in all circumstances. And here it is, it's just three. I've kind of shortened it a little bit, but you see it right there in the text. It starts off with what the text says is desire. It says it's your desire. The temptation process starts by trying to get us, listen to this, Temptation starts almost every time by trying to get us to fulfill a God-given desire outside of a God-given way or outside of God-given timing. Let me say it again. 
There's some needs that God has given you. They're God-given. They're not wrong. The word desire there is not negative or positive. It depends on the situation. And so there's some things that God has given you that in and of themselves, they are not wrong. The desire for love and acceptance and respect and companionship and success, those are God-given. That's part of the Imago day that God made you in. There's nothing wrong with you wanting to be successful, all right? I mean, thank God for Christians who are fired up and called and driven to make a difference in this world, all right? That aren't just sitting at their desk saying, well, if God wants to move me, he can. I never will put any feelers out or ever network. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be successful. There's nothing wrong with you wanting some money. There's nothing wrong with you earning money or having money. There's nothing wrong with sexual desire. Just so you know that, God invented sex, okay? God is not a Puritan in the sense that sex is wrong. There's a whole book called the Song of Solomon. The whole book is about one lover going to the other lover. Even if you say it's an allegory, that's still the allegory God chose. And so it's not that that's wrong. The problem is, is when a good thing becomes too important to you, and when the good thing becomes so important to you, then you you and I either get outside of God's will to get it satisfied, or to make it so strong, we end up saying, I can't wait for God. Now, I want you to just put this in your mind, and I should have put it on the screen, but the word there in verse 13 and 14 for desire. Okay, you didn't come here again for a language lesson, but just put this in the back of your mind because I'm gonna come back to it at the end. It's the word, the word desire is thumeia, thumeia, T-H-U-M-I-E, thumeia in the Greek language, thumeia, that's that's only part of the word here. What James does is he comes along and he puts something in front of it that accelerates it, that magnifies it, and it's the word epi, E-P-I. And so it's epithemia. It's the idea of not just a desire, but an overwhelming strong desire that is so strong you cannot control it. And so he's saying that's the desire. That's where it actually begins. And so let me say it again. The primary strategy is to take a good thing like a job or a marriage or companionship or children and make it so important that it drives all your decisions because you're thinking, I want this more than anything. You think I can't be single. I can't be happy like this. God's not working fast enough, so I'm gonna take it into my own hands. Family is so important, I can't wait on God, so I will lower my standards and date this guy or date this girl. Even though I'm a Christ follower and they're not, they have no intention of being. Why? Because it's so important. It's such a desire. The desire's not wrong. It's just it's so strong. It's become so overwhelming. It's taking you out of what you are supposed to do. You can, I have to have more money, so if I have to have it, if money is so important, nothing wrong with it. But if I'm getting jealous of people, if I am making wrong decisions, if my wife says, don't take that job, honey, don't take that job, that takes you on the road too much, it's gonna take you away from us and our marriage is fragile right now, but yeah, but I gotta get there, I gotta get there, I gotta get there. You take it anyway, that would be because your desire is so strong, it's overwhelming all the judgment that you have. And so uh, what he says is it's gonna start with desire, nothing wrong with it, but when it gets too strong, what happens is, here's the next little thing, and this is such a cool little word he uses here. It's the word deception. He says in the text here, it says, each one is tempted when he is, what does it say? It says when he is enticed and lured away. Man, when he is enticed and lured away. As I said earlier, the word lured, there's a hunting term. It means to draw out into the open. 
I'm just going to take a wild guess. I know we have some people that are against hunting. I know we have some people that are for hunting. Um, so how should I put this? If hypothetically, if one were to hunt deer, hypothetically, there's, there's a hard way, um, like free range. They're out there and you got to kind of figure out, you might go out west and they're like, you got to, that's a lot of work. The easier way, if hypothetically one were to actually like venison and like venison sausage and those types of things, then what would, ha- then what would happen is you would have what's called a deer feeder. And then some of you are like, that's not fair. That's not fair. Okay. Um, a deer feeder is what it sounds like. Uh, a deer feeder is basically a feeder and oftentimes they have a mechanism on them. There's a timer. And so you can actually set that thing full of corn, let's say deer corn, and it will go off at, let's say seven or sunrise every single morning. And the hard part about it is it'll go off for 30 days at 7 a.m. every morning and nothing happened. The deer come out, they're skittish at first, but then after four or five days, they're like, what's wrong? We got, it's a buffet, it's JK's kitchen. What could be better than this right here? And they come out and eat the corn. What happens is after a while, more and more deer will come out there, more and more deer. And it's not happening on day 20, not day 25, not day 29, but on day 31, you're up there in your tree stand. You're up there and you're blind. And all of a sudden, you've got your rifle on them and what they thought was just another day at a free buffet is now the end of their life. Now they're on your kitchen table. Now you're looking in the recipe book about how to make that taste the best. Here he says they're enticed, he switches, it's a fishing term. I'm not a fisherman, but I understand about bait. I understand about bait. I know some of you are like, man, we got the best trout fishing in like a, and I understand that, that's awesome. I mean, I'm, I, I know a couple different things and basically I know you use, if, if one bait's not working, you try another bait, right? If a minnow's not working, use a worm. If a worm's not working, use a whatever. Different bait for different fish, which is a good little, quick little side note for us. As I said earlier, there's different stuff that will attract each of us differently. What might be attractive bait for you is not attractive over here, but what is over here is not over there, depending on a lot of factors, Wisdom is saying, you know what? I can't get around some areas, not because they're black and white wrong, but because I can't handle it. Every time I'm with that person or go to this place, bad things happen. Shame comes back into my life. About every three years, I read you this little saying. I don't even know who the original source is, but it's called choosing to change in five days. Day one, I went for a walk down the street. I fell into a hole. I didn't see it. It took me a long time to get out. It's not my fault. Day two, I went for a walk down the same street. I fell in the same hole. It took me a long time to get out. Why did I do that? Day three, I went for a walk down the same street. I fell in the same hole. I got out quickly. It's my fault. Day four, I went for a walk down the same street. I saw the hole. I walked around it. Day five, I went for a walk down a different street. I can't handle it when I go down that street. Every time I go down that street, I feel something sucking me down into that hole. I'm not going down that street anymore because I don't like what happens on that street. Loved ones, what he's trying to describe here is every temptation has one thing in common in that is that the consequence is the hook, the hunter, they are hidden. It would not be tempting 
to a deer if there was no food and the hunter's out in the open. Very few people can catch a fish with just a hook. There's not anything attracting the fish or the deer into the place where the hunter wants to hunt or the fisherman wants to fish. The goal is I gotta hide the consequences. Think about what you're tempted of, what you struggle with right now. It come, I can promise you one thing, it comes in a pretty package. It comes wrapped with a ribbon. It's not ugly, it's pretty. It doesn't have the consequences out front. It doesn't say, hey, you know what? You go down this road, you're gonna lose your reputation. It doesn't say you go down this road, your kids are never gonna look at you the same way again. It never says out front, if you do this, you're gonna eventually get addicted to it, and in 90 days, you're gonna have to go to detox. It doesn't say that. It just puts the commercial out to say, look how awesome this is, but inevitably what happens is this last one. Some of you might think this is melodramatic, but it says in the end, it leads to death. Now, death is used in several different ways in the Bible. All right, spiritual death is separation from God. If you don't repent and embrace Christ, the Bible's crystal clear. You go into a Christless eternity, then you are separated from God forever. All right, that's spiritual death. Obviously, you can have some physical death. Physical death, as you see it every day in the paper, somebody ODs, somebody gets killed in a drunk driving accident. That's physical death. Relational death. Relational death is when a spouse continues a sinful behavior toward another spouse with no change over years. And what does that end up? That ends up with death to a marriage. The marriage is dead. It didn't die immediately. It didn't even die quickly, but it died eventually. And it died eventually. Why? Because month after month, desire, then deception, and then after a while with no repentance, that just the death of a marriage. You can go to a death of your integrity, the death of your reputation, the death of your testimony. You do this long enough, you get what the Bible calls a hard heart, which is the ability to no longer hear from God. It means even as a Christian, you've got no joy. That shame is the outfit that you pick out every single morning. That's what I'm gonna wear today. I'm gonna wear my shame. I'm gonna wear my no confidence in God at all. Why? Because sin has brought death, can't take your salvation away, but it can make you look like you don't have it and act like you don't even want it. And so temptation, in some degrees, you just gotta look at it to be able to say and Say, you know what, you cannot have my faith. You almost have to personify it. You've got to personalize it. And even right now, think about that one area that you struggle with. Think about that one area that has been defeated. Uh, in your, you've defeat, it's defeated you over and over and over again. Just in your mind, in your heart, just think about it and look at it with this principle. It's like temptation. You cannot have my faith. You cannot have my family. You are not gonna have my future. You're not gonna get that. Just personify what it is. Because bottom line is there's more at stake, more at stake than you ever thought there was. And you thought, I'm just gonna get more self-control. I'm just gonna do that. And there's some great things you ought to do. For a long-term victory, here's the next thing that I know has to happen. Confidence in God, confidence in God, confidence in God's character, confidence in the identity God has given me. So let's look to the next few verses here. And this is, this is so beautiful, the way that James puts it out. Here's what he's saying. He's like, do not be deceived. Don't be fooled. Deceived is, again, it's a, almost a hunting picture again. It's like, don't be led astray. Don't be led down that foolish path. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. And verse 17 and 18, every word's important. 
every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. We're gonna come back to that. That was an old ancient Hebrew picture about the creator God who's just been good to them and gives them a sunrise every morning. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And then the last verse, verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Why? That we should be a kind of, and this is about your identity. We're gonna explain what it means in a minute. That you should be kind of a first fruits among his creatures. All right, what does this look like? Here's what he's basically gonna say in this. Let me me start off with an illustration before you... uh, before we even jump into the specifics. Most of us are thinking about that one area of defeat that we have and we're thinking it is a self-will issue. A lot of us have got that one area and thinking it's just like, you know what, if I have enough self-control, enough self-discipline, certainly some accountability from a brother or a sister, certainly that does help. But bottom line, if this does not change, the most self-disciplined person in here that's got a brother or sister who checks up on them every week is gonna find a way around it because the inside is not changed. Uh, let me bring up, I'm gonna give you two dog stories today, all right? Um, one about mine and then one about another one. When we were learning how to train ranger, one of the things that they said to do is if you want them, what you want them to do, you want them to be able to, you wanna be able to take a piece of meat something good, hamburger, filet, ribeye. And what you wanna do is you wanna be able to put that down, not give them the command to eat it because they're looking at you. The whole key they said was make sure they keep their eyes on you. If they keep their eyes on their master, then they're not gonna be salivating over the filet. And so right now what we do is I can sit there and every now and then I still test him. I'm like, no, no. Now Lori's scared. She won't do this because German shepherds are scary. But you put that down there. You put that down there. And I'm like, no, no. And he's looking at me and he's looking at that. He's looking at me. I'm like, no. And then I stand up. I'm like, hey, hey. And he's looking at me. As long as he's looking at me and not the filet, he's good. He's waiting for me to say the word. I'm not going to give you the word in case one of y'all is going to rob us. But I'm just saying, (laughs) when I give him the word, boom, then he goes for it. What's the whole key? The key is you and I, we keep our eyes on the master. When you keep the eyes on the master, then you are not nearly as pulled away and drawn to whatever that is that is screaming for your attention. You're like, I wish I knew how to do that. Let me give you two examples. Look at verse 17. It says, every good and perfect gift, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. So the first one would be this, confidence. Confidence in God's goodness. Bottom line, at some point, some point deep in your soul, you've gotta be able to realize, recognize, and have confidence in that the God that I'm following, the God that I'm walking with, all is a good God. One of the basic truths of theology is that God is good. He is so completely good that everything he gives is good. 
Anything that is not good does not come from him. There was an old deal way back 15 years ago. It's like, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And man, preachers and music guys, we love that because we'd be able to, God is good. You're like, all the time. And then you all, all the time, God is good. But that's a great theological statement. And don't miss the fact that this is in the middle of a whole section on trials. So when life goes good, we think that we have the pleasure of God. When life goes bad, we think God is angry at us if he exists at all. This is a great time to remind us that when Jesus said, follow me, he was not beckoning us into some barefoot walk through a meadow of waterfalls and lollipops and unicorns. That's not what he's asking us to walk through. He actually says, take up your cross and follow me. And he who does not take up a cross and follow me is not worthy of me. There's some phenomenal joys in the Christian life, phenomenal. But it's not walking around heaven right now. That's not what it is, as I said the other day. If you're a Christian, this is as close to hell as you're ever gonna get. Let me say it again. If you're a Christ follower, you're as close to hell as you're ever gonna get. And if you're not a Christ follower and never become one, this is as close to heaven as you're ever gonna get. So when a trial comes on you as a Christ follower, you can understand, you know what? I got something better than even the Old Testament prophets had. They had promises. Promises are awesome. We have something better. We actually have the demonstration that God is good and God loves us at the cross of Jesus. Old Puritan guy said this, John Owen, he said, the greatest insult you can give to God after you look at the cross is that you would doubt that he actually loves you. It's like, it is insulting. It's like, you know, God, you let me flock my, chemi- my chemistry exam. I don't know if you love me. It's like, that's insulting. Why don't you just go look at the cross for like 15 minutes and you'll understand. And that's why he kind of brings back some of their history. He says, the father of lights, it's the God of creation. He's talking about common grace. It says the father of lights. It's the meaning that God brought up a sunrise this morning. I thought, you know what? If we're just like a little bit closer to the sun, we're all like fried. I'm not talking about fried like a good tan. I'm talking about like fried like fried chicken. I mean, you are dead, okay? That's what, if we're just a little bit closer, if we're a little bit further away, we're like freezing. Not just freezing, we're like dead freezing a little bit further away. And so that's what's called common grace. I just listed some common grace stuff that we forget about here with our first world problems. Common grace is the fact that 90% of us at church, you got some physical strength. I, got, I started whining this week because I'm still getting over the cold and I and, uh, got these antibiotics. I know some of you are kind of freaking because like I shook your hand before the service. I've been on antibiotics for like three days, all right? So I'm, I'm clean, but I still, I'm, you know, you're still kind of coughing stuff and you're like, man, I just, you know, I just kind of, you kind of poor, whiny, poor little old me, okay? Until you realize, you know what? I get to have antibiotics. I got to suck down 19 cough drops this morning and I can get a lot more. People don't have that all around the world. You got thousands, tens of thousands of kids that die every week from diarrhea because they can't get medicine. And you and I are whining about the fact that got a little cough. Most of us are gonna eat something. There's nothing wrong. I'm not trying to be the bearer of bad news, but just we need to understand God's a good God. The lunch and dinner we have today, most of the world will not have, okay? Think about the fact that God didn't even need to give us taste buds. Do you understand how good God is? You don't understand God could have made everything taste the same? Think about that just for a second. God could have made everything you're going to eat today just taste just, just vanilla, just vanilla, just nothing, everything. But what did he do? He's a good God. 
So not only did he give you taste buds, he also put in the mind of men and women like spices and different things so that when you like put a ribeye, you're like, mm, glory to God on this. He didn't have to do that. Did he have to? He didn't have to do that. That's just God's goodness. That's just God's goodness. That's called common, it's called common grace. He gave you friends that encourage you, gave you the ability to see. 99.9% of us at Biltmore Church, you can see right now, smell, hear. And he's like, if you can trust me with the big stuff, can you not trust me with the specifics? And he's like, don't fall for cheap imitations. That's what temptation is. It's a cheap imitation. That's all it is. It's dropping the bait for something that you're saying at that point in time, if I fall to that, I'm saying, I'm forgetting God for a minute and I'm choosing to swallow the hook of a cheap imitation. And he's saying, don't fall for those. Don't put the gift, don't put this little, it's a gag gift, that's the way to put it. It's a gag gift. It's the stuff you give people you don't like or at the office and you're like, what kind of bad gift can I give them so that when they open up this beautiful package, it's something they don't want. That's what temptation is. Beautiful package, oh, I don't want that shame. I don't want that guilt. I don't want my kids to look at me like that. I don't want my wife to walk out. I don't want my integrity down the drain. I don't want that. God said, why would you do that? Why would you, remember how good I am. One of our worship pastors named Matt Ware, he's the East Campus worship pastor. He's a big redheaded guy. He's got a dog named Cooper, and he was telling us we were in a worship planning meeting this week, and he's telling us he's taking, I think he was bike riding, but his dog was running alongside him, the lab, I think, uh, Cooper. And they're on Bent Creek or somewhere, and they're going along, and then they stop for a second, and there's this beautiful stream right there. Right there, there's this beautiful, fresh, freshwater stream. But because it had rained, there was kind of this stagnant pool with that film over it. And as they stopped before he could get off his bike, Cooper starts lapping up from this nasty, algae-filled, scummy-looking. He's like, don't do that, don't do that. Look at this stream over here. It's beautiful, it's fresh. And Cooper's like, well, I've got to go over here and i got to eat out of this nasty, scummy little pond. You're like, well, dumb dog, dumb dog. Some of you are like, catch wouldn't do that, catch wouldn't do that. We do that. We do that. We do that. Jeremiah looked at his people and it's like, you know what? God spoke to Jeremiah and said, my people have committed two evils. And it's not just talking about Israel thousands of years ago, it's talking about us right here at Biltmore Church. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, containers, that don't hold water. And man, we go after cisterns just like Cooper goes after that little stagnant pool. It's like, this is awesome, this is awesome, this is awesome. Whole times God's like, do you understand? I got this awesome living stream right over here. You're like, well, yeah, I know it, and I've, I've messed up, and I really, 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 really feel bad about it. And as a matter of fact, I feel so bad, and I feel so bad, I don't even know where to begin. And this is where the encouraging, it says, did you see that little part? It says, God, whom there is no variation or shadow of change. Did you catch that? So those of you that came kind of coming in here, slinking in here and just thinking, this thing has beat me for four years. It's gonna do the same thing Monday. 
He says he doesn't change. God knew what he was, and we've talked about it. God knew what he was gonna buy when he bought you at the cross. He knew what he was buying on the cross. He knew what he was getting with you. He's not changing his mind. He's not watching you mess up and asking, hey, is there a return policy on Bruce? Is there like a return policy? He's not acting like I want him to act. This week I actually had some sandals delivered and they did not feel comfortable. They were gonna be like my summer sandals. So I was like, honey, what do I do? She's like, you return them. Here's a return slip. And so I'm returning them because I didn't like them. They disappointed me. They weren't what I expected. God never looks at the angels and says, I need a return slip for Woody or for Jim. He never does that. He's never surprised. He's never like, I didn't get what I thought I would get. That's why you're like, man, my sin disgusts God. I feel disgusting. All the disgust that God has for you is poured out on the brutal death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why the cross was grimy. That's why the cross was bloody. That's why the cross was sorrowful because our sin was bloody and grimy and sorrowful. But now it's gone. Now it's paid for. That's why we sung the song. That's why we wrote the song, his death for our debt, Jesus in our place. That is not something that we found on the internet, all right? We found that in the Bible, all right? We found that in 2 Corinthians that made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, okay? So what you have to do today is say, is my confidence in God's goodness? Do I know that I know that I know that God is good? And let me just, I'm gonna close with this one. Here's this one. I wish we had more time on this one, but here, here's, this is such a, a great one. It's, this is where a lot of us live. You want to look for lasting change over that? You want to figure out, how do I get back up? You know, Proverbs says the righteous man, he falls seven times, but he gets back up. So either how do I stay upright or how do I get back upright when I fall? This is the key. If you were to ask me the one thing, the one thing, we can't unpack it all, the one thing that gives you the most victory over temptation is confidence in what God has already spoken over you if you're a son or daughter of God. Now it's just alluded to right here, but in verse 18, it says, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. First fruits, that's Old Testament people. They would take the first of their crops out of their ground and give it to God. But here he's saying, you are that way. You are like the first fruits of my creation, that he has chosen us, he has redeemed us, he has made us as a people special because of what Jesus has done. And so locking into temptation, don't lower yourself as sons and daughters to fall to the bait, you're special, you've been bought back, that is beneath your dignity. You're not acting like that. I think it was Queen Elizabeth when she was a girl, she was at the table, she was kind of slumped down like this, and the dad says, like, don't you remember who you are? Sit up, sit up, you're the queen. Sit up and act like who you are. It's like, man, that is what we've got to do. Do you remember who you are? Just think about all the adjectives the Bible uses. Forgiven, loved, saved, redeemed, adopted, son, daughter, rewarded, heard, all those things, that's about, that's about you. But what do we do? We forget about it. We forget about who we are, particularly when we blow it. Okay, one last, here's the probably top five movie. I'm not gonna argue with it about it at all. Top five movie of all time. 
I'm not sure about the new one, but top five movie of all time, even the animated version was The Lion King. I, I don't even write me an email. There's no, there's no way that's not a top five movie. The fact that it's coming out again, amazing coming out again, and it's coming out again, but let me just give you the story. It's not, I'm not trying to be a spoiler. This is it's the same story. I've seen it on Broadway. It's always awesome. It's always awesome. But there's so many different storylines in there. There's so many, but here's the one that's about identity. Again, Mufasa's the dad. Mufasa, Mufasa. It's just such an awesome name. Mufasa, right? Like, what do you want to call me? You want to call you Bruce or Dr. Frank? I want you to call me Mufasa. That's what I want you to call me, all right? So, all right, so that's like Mufasa, okay? But then the son is Simba. It's Simba. Simba's the son. Long story short, Simba messes up. Simba messes up. Simba messes up. And then because of his shame and his guilt, he ran away and he stayed away. And he stayed away for a long time. And because he was staying away, it affected a lot of other folks. And at one point, the whole turning point of the whole story is he gets a vision of his dad. And he's looking down there. And his dad says, listen, you have forgotten me. And because you have forgotten me, you have forgotten who you are. You have forgotten me. And because you've forgotten me, you have forgotten who you are. Christian, that is exactly what happens when you and I wallow in our shame, in our guilt. You have forgotten God and therefore you've forgotten who you are. If you've been reconciled, redeemed, bought with a price, you're still a son or daughter. And he puts his hand down there and he says, I am the lifter of your head. You are special. You didn't surprise me with that sin. Let's get back up. Let's do better. I love you. And let's go on in the grace of God. And so what we've got in this story is here. Whether it's something that is, uh, whether it's something that is habitual, that's been there for a long time, whether it's something that has just got you down and discouraged, whatever it is, here's what I'd ask you to do. At some point, you got to say, "I'm going to let the goodness of God and the identity that God has given me in Jesus overwhelm, overwhelm the temptation." All right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a quick analogy. And then we're going to actually have that new song kind of sung over. So let me get this one out. Earlier in the sermon, I said this. I said that whole, that word for desire was epithemia, E-P-I, right on the front end of it. It just means above or beyond or more than. Some of you probably have EpiPens. We had a friend in Houston that was allergic to, I think she was allergic to shellfish or some kind of fish. And so you'd go to a, you'd even just go to a restaurant that served fish. That man, she, her, it would just start to attack her body, man. It was just like eyes would start to swell up. Breathing would start to come down. And what she would have to do is she would have to take out her EpiPen. And when she put the EpiPen in her, that would overwhelm what was attacking her body and actually make her healthy again. All that to say, your desires are going to be there. You can't say, I'm not gonna have the desire X, Y, and Z. What you do when the bait is dropped, when the corn is spread, when you're so tempted, it's overwhelming me, I have to go there, is you've got to get an EpiPen of God's goodness, his identity that he's made you in Christ, and God is too good to give me something bad, and God has made me a son or daughter, why would I lower myself to that and let that overwhelm the temptation? 